Good morning, King's Church Kingston. Hope you're doing well. If you're a visitor logging in for maybe the first time amongst us, hope you're having a wonderful morning with us. It's great that you've been able to join us. I hope you find this morning helpful. So today we're concluding our preaching series on the book of Philippians, which Paul wrote around AD 62 from a jail in Rome to the Philippians. And it deals with, this section deals with one of our greatest needs and longings, a desire to know contentment. You see, the search for happiness and contentment motivates our behaviour, doesn't it? We pursue that we believe will satisfy us. But we often find our satisfaction is often fleeting, or at worst, satisfaction seems perpetually just out of our reach. How can I be content? It's not just an abstract question. It's a deeply personal one. I want to be content in life. Yet I often find discontent is live and kicking. And I'm guessing that's not just my story. It's probably your story too. Where is contentment found is a question that every generation asks. There's often a real sense of emptiness and dissatisfaction in life. Whether that's 3,000 years ago where King Solomon in Ecclesiastes wrote, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or it's Mick Jagger singing out, I can't get no satisfaction. Here's a short video I want to show you that came out about five years ago with celebrities talking about success, wealth and contentment. Let's see what they say. When I was young, I thought that success was all I needed. That's what was going to bring the happiness. Buying my mom a house, uh, being the fame, the accolades, having people say, yo, you are the best in the game. I thought those would be the things that would bring happiness. And then when those things came, the, the happiness wasn't there. And I, I realized why that was. There was, a, there was such an attempt to achieve these things and to keep going that you lose sight of the people and the, the blessings that you have around you. You're so focused on the next success, the next step in your career, the next check, whatever it is, and you forget the fact that you have these, these things that seem small um, if you're looking that way, mm-hmm. but if you look this way, you realize they're the only thing that matters, and that's your mother, that's your family, that's love. What was it like growing up in Grays? Talk a bit about your family. I'm from Grays in Essex. Grays is as it sounds. I didn't like it, I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I, fit, I fitted in, and the only way that it seemed possible that I would be happy seemed to be this kind of acquisitive, individualistic narrative. Get used to hearing that word from me. So like, what I thought was, if you want to be happy, you've got to become a successful person, you've got to acquire stuff, you've got to have people adore you, you've got to become glamorous. Because I felt small, I felt alienated alone, and I felt very, very powerless in grace. Then what happened was, I then experienced the things that I was culturally indoctrinated to believe would be a kind of salvation. Fame, fortune, uh, attention, limitless uh, fellatio if required. (laughs) And yet, salvation did not come. You know, when I went back to where I was from, when I got there, there was a sort of a sense of despair that I wasn't really prepared for. The place I'd come from had deteriorated, it had become worse. Every shop replaced by betting shops and pound shops and talk of food banks and talk of UKIP. And I thought, oh no, there is a massive despair. The alienation that I felt on a personal level is actually a social problem. And we're culturally trying to solve it in the way that I tried to solve it as an individual, by lacquering it in glamour, by trying to acquire money, by consuming 
So I thought, is there anything you can do about that, Russell, as a person who talks for a living? And then I thought, yeah, talk about that and then write a book about it, and then I've done it. <laughs> Happiness. Um, it's, it's complex, right? And it's deceiving mm. at times, you know, because people think the two equate. Yes. You know, to each other, and they don't, right? That's, you have a lot of money. It's up, yeah. And, and, and I have a lot of happiness, but that doesn't mean that the two equate to each other. Has your happiness risen at the same amount as your bank account? No. That's the thing. They don't. They don't. They don't equate, or they're they not tied in any way. They're or, not tied or, in, to each other. Wow. I mean, it allows you freedom, and it allows you to go places where you can smile and look at the sunset and things like that. That's what you choose to do, and you enjoy to do. Right. But there are a lot of people with tons of money who are, who are unhappy because they're. Either they become a prisoner of their money, right. or they become so consumed with getting money that they don't allow time for happiness. Right. Life is about balance, right? You have to have some type of balance. You have like time for work, and it's time for play. What's so striking about the passage we're going to read is Paul's writing about contentment. Yet he's writing whilst under house arrest in Rome, which continues for two years. Whilst under house arrest, he wasn't able to work. There was no such thing as a pension. Yet he was responsible for paying the rent on the house he was imprisoned in and for providing himself with the food that he would eat. And he writes about contentment whilst relying on the gifts and the kindness of fellow Christians to meet his financial needs. He's awaiting to see whether he will be given the death sentence for treason against Caesar because he was declaring the true king was King Jesus. He doesn't know which way the court case will go. And in the midst of this isolation, uncertainty about finances, uncertainty regarding his future, Paul writes about contentment. Let's read from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now as at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learnt in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learnt the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the Philippians have heard about Paul and that he was in prison in Rome and they took a generous special offering and handed it to a man called Epaphroditus who brought that gift to Paul in prison. Paul was so grateful that he wrote a letter, the one that we're reading today, and then he gave it to Epaphroditus who brought it back to the Philippians to read. And as we read this letter... It may seem slightly strange, and Paul may seem a bit rude. You see, the Philippians have given him a generous gift, but Paul doesn't even acknowledge the gift until he's wrapping up the letter. And then when he does talk about the gift, he seems to imply that he doesn't really need it. So was Paul just ungrateful? I don't think he was. Firstly, it was a common practice in letters at the time to leave thanks for gifts to the end of the letter. But also he does celebrate their gift. In verse 10, he rejoices in their renewed concern for him. In verse 14, he says, it was good for you to share in my troubles. In verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and even more 
You see, Paul is grateful for the gift, but ever the pastor, he wants to put the gift in a broader theological perspective of what is really important. Paul writes that I've learned the secret of being content. You see, he points beyond the gift he's received to contentment in God. Paul was grateful for the gift. It was a good thing. But Paul points to something more profound in verse 11 when he says, I've learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. In verse 12, he expresses it again. I've learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation. And so often when we think about contentment, it's inherently tied up to our circumstances. Contentment is something that's just around the corner that will come about when something in our situation changes. You know, when the kids start sleeping through the night. When we have that holiday. You know, when I get married, then I'll know contentment. When I have children. When I retire. When I finish college and start earning. When I leave home, then, out of the clutches of my parents, then I'll know contentment. Yet in the midst of Paul's imprisonment, where he's facing a real possibility of death, where he is sometimes hungry, Paul is able to write that he's satisfied. He's content. See, one strategy to find contentment is to pursue a life of accumulation, a life of plenty, of abundance. And perhaps in our culture, that's the most common approach. Another approach is to withdraw from the world, to adopt a monastic approach and to reject many of the pleasures of life. We take vows of poverty, vows of simplicity, vows of celibacy. What's so interesting when you look at Philippians chapter 4 is that Paul does neither of those things. He's learnt the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. Gordon Fee in his commentary about Philippians writes this, Paul's various hardship lists make it clear he experienced plenty of want. But in contrast to some, he did not choose want as a way of life, so as to demonstrate himself content. Rather, he'd learnt to accept whatever came his way, knowing that his life was not conditioned by either abundance or need. You see, for Paul, the secret to his contentment was not found in a way of life, a technique or a strategy. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, Benjamin Franklin and others would say, happiness comes from within you. The Dalai Lama said, human happiness and human satisfaction must ultimately come from within oneself. The Apostle Paul would disagree. He would say that contentment is found outside of ourselves, in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul can face the difficult circumstances, but this is not because he's strong in himself. It's not because he's self-sufficient. Paul's resources were found in the person of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who enabled him to know joy, peace and contentment whilst being a prisoner in chains. It was knowing Christ's resurrection power at work in him that enabled him to endure such hardship with contentment. The secret for Paul's contentment was his ongoing relationship with Christ. It's his single focus on Christ that shines throughout this letter, 
whether it's Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul writes, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. Or Philippians chapter 3, where he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For Paul, Christ was at the centre. He was the source of his contentment, irrespective of circumstances. His relationship with Christ gave him the resources he needed to live in difficult circumstances with joy and in contentment. You see, perhaps one of the most misquoted scriptures in the Bible is Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This isn't a verse that promises sporting success, that a sprinter can run 100 metres in under nine seconds, or for business success. It's a promise that whether in need or in plenty, God will give us a strength we need and we can find contentment in him. Paul in these verses doesn't present a prosperity message. His story is not trust Jesus and you will know ever-increasing financial riches. He knew what it was to know contentment and God's power, whatever the circumstances. And in these times of financial uncertainty due to COVID-19, this verse gives hope to the soul, doesn't it? At this time, there's a greater risk of redundancy. There's more uncertainty about the workplace. And these verses, they're not a job security insurance plan, but they do promise that in the midst of uncertainty, God is enough. He can strengthen us, he can meet our needs, and we can know contentment. And here's the good news. Paul didn't automatically know this contentment. He writes, I've learnt the secret of being content in all circumstances. And we too can learn contentment. So how do we grow in this? I think firstly, it's remembering that it is learned, that it's a journey. It's learning to trust that God's good and he's for us, as it says in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And then it's remembering to fix our sights on Jesus. Paul writes to the Philippian, uh, the Colossian Christians and says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians chapter three, verses one and two. So we've got to put into practice disciplines that put Christ on center stage, that lift up our eyes, that awaken in us delight in him. Whether that's at the start of the day, offering ourselves to God, reading the Bible, praying, allowing his word to shape us. Whether it's at the end of the day, taking time to reflect on What's, what's happened, giving thanks to God. And as we learn to fix our eyes on Jesus, as the gospel is rooted in us, and as Christ takes centre stage in our life, there is an overflow of contentment. So Paul's showing that the gospel's working in him and it's causing him to know contentment. However, he then turns to the Philippians and he says, the gospel's also working in you and it's resulting in generosity, God-inspired generosity. Let's read Philippians chapter 4, verses 13 onwards, verse 14 onwards. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we see how the Philippian believers partnered with the apostolic mission that Paul was part of. They shared in his troubles and financially supported his work. We see the language of ongoing partnership, togetherness, mission and sharing. The Philippians had supported Paul when he'd left Macedonia and when he'd been church planting in Thessalonica. And now they were sending a gift again to provide for his needs whilst he was in jail in Rome. We see the evidence of the gospel at work in the Philippian believers as it overflowed in generosity and consistent partnership and giving to Paul's mission. We see in Acts chapter 2 that the new believers who received the Holy Spirit overflowed in generosity. We read that all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You see, as Christians, we're not to live independently. We're to care for the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters. King's Church Kingston's a community of believers. We're to care for each other. And then we're part of a bigger family of churches called New Frontiers, which are in relationship with each other and share similar values and love and care for each other. And as the COVID-19 pandemic progressed, we felt stirred to do a gift day to raise money for a COVID-19 emergency fund so that we could meet the needs of those in our church community, the most vulnerable in our borough, and our brothers and sisters in our family of churches overseas who've been impacted by COVID-19. Just as Paul commended the generosity of the Philippians, I want to commend you. The generous giving we've seen is evidence that God has been working in our hearts, provoking sacrificial giving. We mentioned the total amount for the gift day last week, but today Patrick's going to tell us where the money that we've given is going. So Patrick, over to you. Yes, we do want to commend you, King's Church, and thank you so much for your generosity. As you found out last week, we have collected over £32,000. When you add the gift aid to that and you add the £25,000 that we have committed from the surplus fund of the church, that gives us over £63,000 to use. So how do we plan to use this? Well, £15,000 is going to support the church member needs. £15,000 is going to King's food bank and related activities of uh, Kingsgate Meals and Grow Baby. At 30,000 we'll be going to New Frontier projects recommended by Newground. 10,000 to Zimbabwe, 10,000 to Kenya and 10,000 to India. That'll leave us with 3,000 pounds which we will use uh, as and when the need arises. Uh, I'm just reminded of the scripture in 2 Corinthians 9 Uh, verse 15 that says thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift thanks so much Patrick 
And once again, thanks so much, King's Church, for your generous giving. And in a way of commendation, in this passage, Paul highlights three blessings of generous giving. The first one is this, generous giving is a good investment. In verse 17, Paul turns to the language of accounts and says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Or as Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven. Alec Mottier, when writing about these verses, says this, Paul seems to suggest that Christians should seek out opportunities to expend their generosity upon the needy. Because by selling what they have and giving alms, they make for themselves purses that do not grow old, a treasure in heaven that does not fail. Secondly, generous givings, pleasing worship to God. Verse 18, we read, uh, their gift being described as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's an image drawn from the Old Testament sacrificial system where people worship God through burnt offerings at the temple. And Paul's telling the Philippians that your generous giving is worship that pleases God. Thirdly, generous giving has a promise of provision. In verse 19, Paul writes, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Paul can't reciprocate and give a gift to the Philippians. He's got no money and is under house arrest in Rome, but he has something far better in store. Paul says, my God, my God will meet your needs. Gordon Fee puts it like this when describing this verse. The Philippians' generosity towards Paul is exceeded beyond all imagination by the lavish wealth of the eternal God who dwells in glory, full of riches made available to his own in Christ. God does not pour this out upon us according to our needs. It's not out of his riches, but according to his glorious riches that we have access to in Christ. God promises to provide for his people. And this letter finishes fittingly with Paul writing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 4 verse 23. You see, both contentment and generous giving flow out of God's work grace at work in us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. King Jesus was willing to be humbled. He was willing to lay aside all his heavenly riches. Ultimately, he died on a cross, separated from God the Father, so that you and I could be rescued from spiritual poverty, so that we could find contentment instead of discontentment, so that we could be freed from slavery to materialism and money and be released into generosity. And that invitation is extended to everyone, including any of you who are exploring the Christian faith. If you come to Jesus and if you trust him as Lord and Saviour, you can enter into life and life in all its fullness. You see, Paul calls us to follow Jesus. To conclude, like Paul, that everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and to know his grace working in us 
so that we can rejoice, whether in plenty or in want, knowing a peace that surpasses understanding. So let's now come to King Jesus and worship him, the one who satisfies our soul.